In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Dr. Ken Berry is a board certified family physician practicing family medicine for two decades. His book, Lies My Doctor Told Me, dispels the myths and misinformation that have been perpetuated by the medical and food industries for decades. On today's podcast, we welcome Dr. Ken Berry for a radically genuine conversation. All right. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. Wow, you're coming at this with a lot of energy right now. <laughs> I had a cup of coffee right before this. <laughs> Please follow me on Twitter at Dr. McFillin and my new website, drmcfillin.com. Fellas, I've been talking to you a lot about some of the transitions that I have made over the past, I guess it's been six, seven years now. And our guest today is somebody who I really got into probably about three or four years ago when I was transitioning into kind of a keto lifestyle, carnivore diet, ancestral type uh, understanding of how best to treat my body with food. And you know, when you're a psychologist and you're working with people in the manner in which I'm working with people, we, you see a lot of consistent challenges that people have with, with their own health and well-being. And you just opens up the door to start kind of looking at the intersection between health and depression and anxiety. And a lot of what I was seeing in my office. And so today's guest is extremely um, passionate about areas that I think that we're really interested in in growing the podcast. Uh, he reached out to me on Twitter with, hey, doc, can we, uh, can we work together to help people improve their mental health? And I automatically thought, you know what, first, we need to have the conversation. What you're talking about there needs to be heard by our audience and within you know, our, our space in the, in the mental health field, because I think just making some of the changes and discussing the things that he's passionate about is going to make real significant advancements in how people feel. Um, so my initial thought was, let's have this conversation. Uh, I want to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ken Berry, who is a board certified family physician and a fellow in the American Academy of Family Physicians. He's the author of Lies My Doctor Told Me, Medical Myths That Can Harm Your Health. He's a popular advocate for a low-carb lifestyle and ancestral diet, highlighting health and nutrition information that keeps so many of us sick. Most importantly, he had to learn the, the hard way and, and challenge much of what he learned in medical school to save his own health. He's very popular on social media, has an amazing YouTube channel, which I really suggest everybody checks out. Yeah, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Produces a ton of content on really various health and, and wellness topics that unfortunately still are not mainstream. Dr. Barry, welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Hey, Roger. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you. I think we have to start here uh, kind of with learning about your personal story since I think it's your experience that kind of helped pull you out of the matrix in a lot of ways and, and take a new path. Can you just kind of inform our listeners about how you got to this place in your career? 
Yeah. So early in my medical practice, I was working full time as a, a emergency room physician and also had a full time clinical practice. And so there's obviously a little stress going on there. Uh, but I started gaining weight and, and that's all I knew at first. I put on a little weight. And so I basically lived in scrubs which have a drawstring at the waist. And so I, you know, I could still fit into extra large scrubs, which I had to wear because I'm six foot three. And, but I, I didn't think I'd gain that much weight. And, you know, until one day I tried to put on a pair of jeans that used to fit great. And I literally, there was two inches before the button met the hole and it was not going to happen. And then I got on a scale and I was like, Holy shit. What has happened here? <clears throat> and so at that time, I was eating just a junk diet. I, you know, I eat some good food, but chronically snacking, chronically eating high, highly processed, high carb junk. Uh, my standard energy shake. I had to, I had to drive from the emergency room I was moonlighting at back to my residency practice, uh, which was ninety minutes away, and I had ninety minutes to get there and traffic was often a concern. So I would take a big glass of Dutch chocolate milk and crumble up some powdered donuts in that. And then I, that would be my breakfast on that 90 minute, often 90 mile an hour commute back and forth uh, for my, my third year residency and, and back and forth to the ER. And I had gained a lot of weight. I was I, in my earlier years, very slender, too skinny in my eyes. I, you know, I couldn't I lift it all the time. Couldn't put on any muscle. Just didn't happen. Uh, could literally eat five pizzas and drink a, a two liter of Pepsi, not gain an ounce. I used to be that guy. So everybody can hate me for that, but I'm no longer that guy. So now you can love me because I fatten very easily. And so when I got on the scale, it was an ungodly number that showed up. Even at six foot three, that was not acceptable. And uh, so I started trying to follow the guidelines, right? Like, okay, I looked up the, the, the pyramid. It wasn't a plate back then. It was a pyramid. And uh, I looked at the, you know, the American Heart Association's dietary guidelines, et cetera. And so I started eating lots of whole grains and I started drinking fruit juice smoothies instead of my Dutch chocolate milk and powdered donut smoothie, which tasted better, but, uh, and started jogging three days a week, I would get out there and I, I abhor jogging, but I was, I, I, I'm a Southern boy, as you may be able to tell from the accent, the people I grew up around, very common sense. One plus one is two, right? If, if the car mechanic has a bunch of broken cars in his front yard that never, you don't take your car to that guy. Cause he obviously would fix all those cars if he could. And so you also probably shouldn't go get medical and nutrition advice from a fat doctor. <laughs> and so I had, I, had, I had to fix that. I couldn't be that fat doctor walking into someone's room saying, hey, you need to lose a few pounds. It just didn't work for me. And so after three months of uh, following the ADA, AHA uh, pyramid guidelines, I got on the scale again and I'd actually gained more weight. I was up to 297 pounds at six foot three that's and that qualifies as we used to call it morbidly obese now the term is severely obese and so i thought shit i, I need to probably check some labs so i checked all my labs and i was pre-diabetic my inflammatory markers were high uh just uh, i was a mess i was miserable mentally and physically i was chronically pissed off chronically flustered perturbed 
irritated. Uh, if one, if the first time, you know, in the morning I get up, if I drop the toothpaste cap, that's like, that's it. This day's shot. It's going to be one of those kind of days, right? And then it, I self-fulfilled prophecy. It was one of those kind of days. Uh, not a pleasure to be around. Not a pleasure for my kids to have to tolerate. Not a, ple a pleasure for my patients or my colleagues to be around me. And I thought, well, obviously that because I, I you know, I, I can accuse my patients of being noncompliant. Right. Mm -hmm. So, well, you obviously didn't eat lots of whole grain bread and drink fruit juice smoothies. You're still drinking your Dutch chocolate milk. But I live with me. So I knew that I had done all those things and was also jogging three days a week, which was misery, torture. Uh, and so I, I thought, well, something, either I'm a, indeed a special snowflake and my, my physiology is different than everybody else's, or maybe this advice is not really that good of advice. So I started reading far outside of my wheelhouse and my little box that I was in and uh, kind of came around to this primal paleo meat heavy <coughs> ancestrally appropriate lower carb diet. And that immediately started to improve my A1C and I started to lose some weight. And while I was doing that, I, I started hearing about keto over and over and over. And I'm like, well, let me look into this. And I read about it, read some studies. I'm like, well, that makes pretty good sense. So I switched from low carb to keto. Again, everything just kept getting better and better and better. I felt better. Even mentally, I was, I was clearer and I was, I was not as quick to anger as I was back in the day. Uh, the Dutch chocolate milk days. And my A1C was back to normal now. I was no longer pre-diabetic. Uh, all of my inflammatory markers were coming down. All of my adult life, I'd had severe, severe reflux heartburn because I have a small hiatal hernia, which I discovered on a, a chest X-ray. Uh, and that will tend to make reflux heartburn more likely to occur and also more severe but it was 80% better on keto. I'd went from taking two Nexium every single day to maybe taking, taking a Tums two or three days a week. And I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. But at, at that time I had just done this to lose the weight. I did not realize that keto did any of these other things at all. Even my heartburn being better. I just thought, well, it's because I've lost weight. It probably decreased my intra-abdominal pressure, blah, blah, blah. It can't be the diet, right? And so I started to recommend this diet to all my most severely obese patients who were on the schedule for, to have bariatric surgery to my patients who were, you know, what basically weighed 300 pounds or more. I'm like, dude, and cause they would see me and remember that common sense man on the street thing I alluded to earlier when they see results, they're like, well, something happened here. Cause I see, I see results. What did you do doc? And so I'm like, well, okay, I'll tell you what I did. And I, I started to, anybody with a BMI of 30 or above, I started to recommend this. And they all came back. And not only had they lost weight, but, but chronic medical conditions were significantly better, in some cases gone. And they would say, well, my knee arthritis, I used to have to walk with a cane. I've lost 40 pounds, so I'm sure that, you know, I'm not putting as much weight on it. But it doesn't hurt at all anymore. Does this diet do that? And I, at first I was like, I don't think so. I think you probably just lost weight, physics, you know, weight. Then uh, more people with reflux be like, I don't even have to I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to refill your premise. And they're like, I don't even take that anymore. My reflux is so much better. Did the diet do that? I'm like, nah, I don't think so. Just the list is just long and long. I could keep going. 
And so then I started thinking, well, how could this diet, if it is improving all these chronic things, how could it do that? And that's when I kind of started reading about hyperinsulinemia. And I'm like, oh, so when you're eating very, very low carb, your insulin comes back down to low normal. But if you're eating a high carb diet, even if you have a normal blood sugar and a normal hemoglobin A1C, if you're eating a high carb diet, your insulin level is going to be high. You're going to have hyperinsulinemia. I wonder if that's what's going on here. <laughs> and indeed, I found reams of research linking hyperinsulinemia to PCOS, to uh, arthritis pain, and then also many links to mental health as well. I'm like, huh, interesting. I wonder if that could be what's going on. And, and it's still just anecdotal stuff I'm getting as a practicing physician. I'm not putting any stock in it. I'm just, I'm seeing the pattern because that's what common sense people do. They, when they see a pattern, they're like, maybe that means something. I should look into that. That's what a smart person does where I come from. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then I kept hearing this crazy Sean Baker guy talking about a carnivore diet. And on my Facebook page, I, I said, Hey, let's do a month of carnivore. Let's try it. What's the worst that could happen. Right. So at the end of carnivore, uh, I was still a little overweight with keto, but not terribly bad. I was in my A1C was normal. Uh, I lost even more weight on that one month of carnivore and the heartburn that I spoke of previously was gone. I, I had lost my Tums role and I didn't even know where it was and I didn't need it anymore for a full month. And so that was unheard of for me as an, as an adult to not have any heartburn for 30 solid days. That was really weird. Uh, also a link to hyperinsulinemia and, and other inflammatory things in the diet. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to keep doing this because I, you know, by that point I'd read about Stefanson and his year long tri trial as an inpatient eating nothing but meat. I had been looking at like what's in plants that you can't get from meat. What is it exactly? Which amino acid, which fatty acid, which vitamin, which mineral that doesn't occur in meat. And I couldn't find any. It's like, so meat has all of it. That's weird. How, how did I take a nutrition class in medical school? How did they not teach us that? How, it seems like that's kind of important. That we would want to know that. But nobody ever taught me that. And so I kind of had to discover all this on my own. Uh, keep me in mind that there's thousands of people out there that also discovered this on their own long before I did. And so I just kept doing carnivore because, first of all, that's the lowest carb diet you can eat. You can't get any lower carb than meat and eggs. And so that explains my continued weight loss, even over and above keto, because I had cut the carbs even more. But all of my inflammation, my, my knee arthritis, I tore an ACL playing uh, basketball in high school, got that repaired. But I always had my knee was always tweaky, always achy. If I did the wrong thing, I'd get a little effusion in the joint, you know, all that kind of stuff. Every morning I got up, that knee was stiff. That was gone. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Can diet really have that much of an effect? Sorry, UPS has upset my dog, <laughs> Lily. Lily, hey, it's you know him. It's fine. So, so I just kept doing carnivore, and I'm up. I'm going on four years carnivore now because I don't ever want to feel as sick and inflamed as I used to feel, and now. Uh, Nisha and I, we've been together for nine years, married for seven. And I, I, I'll ask her, like, am I different just relationship wise now than I used to be emotionally, 
you know, quick to anger. And she's like, it's a different world. You're a different guy than yeah. you used to be. Yes. We're and talking about. I, I started seeing your stuff on Twitter about mental health. And I, I follow Dr. Georgia Ede. I follow Dr. Chris Palmer, who are talking about more and more either keto or carnivore for mental health. And I've had them both on my channel on YouTube. And I'm like, maybe that's what's going on. So I've put out a feeler on my Facebook page or on Twitter, like, hey, has your mental health improved since you've been keto or since you've been ketovore or carnivore? And the it just would flood with, oh, my God, yes. Oh, my God, yes. Oh, my God, yes. And I thought, well, that's a lot of anecdotes, right? For this to just be a random, random chance. That's a lot of anecdotal uh, evidence right there. And then I found you and, I, and, and the work you're doing, which I, I greatly admire and honor. And, and now I, uh, with Chris Palmer's new book that's, that's coming out soon, if it's not already out, it, it, it becomes self-evident that yes, the food you eat absolutely has an effect on your mental health, either negatively or positively, depending on what your diet is. Uh, but, and then I obviously have been digging into the pharmaceuticals for mental health diagnoses, the DSM, what are we up to four or five now? Uh, and how, how I, I actually listened to a book on audible about how they came up with the DSM diagnosis. And it literally, I was, you know, always just assumed as a doctor, they, you know, would look at all the research. No, it's just a bunch of gray haired gentlemen with long coats would get in a room and they would literally vote. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like for homecoming queen, they would vote. Should this symptom be included? How many symptoms do you have to have in order to get the diagnosis? And then once you've got the diagnosis, that's got a CP, that's got an ICD-10 code with it. That goes in your permanent medical record. And then there's this whole host of pharmaceuticals that suddenly opens up that are, you need these now because you have that ICD-10 diagnosis. And literally they just vote on the diagnosis and, and how many you, you have to have in order to get that diagnosis blew me away. Yeah, it's insanity. You talk about common sense. I feel like, you know, that common sense, not so common anymore. And one of my challenges in working in this field is we're up to 341 diagnoses in that DSM. And as a, as a society, we're seeing all health markers really becoming more and more problematic, increase in obesity for males. And I want to get into this a little bit later, you know, significant decreases in testosterone. Our lifestyles are shit sleep's impacted. We're not connected with nature in the same way. We're not as active. We're sedentary. And then we're, we're stuck in screens for most of the time. And what's the solution to that? You know, you'll, you slap on a, another diagnosis and for another pill. And I want to be able to, you're a family physician. And I think our family doctors have such challenges now in the modern day healthcare system. They're seeing so many people with chronic health conditions my question to you is, you talk about kind of a common sense approach with all these problematic lifestyle issues that are coming into the office and people are just getting sicker and sicker. What is happening within the culture in, in family medicine? How is the science disseminated? How are they making uh, clinical decisions for their, for their clients? And what can you tell us about just overall the, 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 the system as it exists right now? So I, I have high hopes for the American Academy of Family Practice because <clears throat> they've been mavericks in medicine in many different ways. But when it comes to diet, they're still completely off their rocker. Uh, this is family practice news. It's a throwaway journal that we get. 
uh, throwaway journal for, for the lay public. That just means that this is not a hard research journal. It's just kind of a summation of what the research shows. Very often it has drug ads. Uh, yeah, there's a guard ad. And so basically the ads just pay for people to write bullshit articles. So on the very inside front page, it says, eat less meat to prevent type 2 diabetes. And this is what doctors would read. Now, the doctors are busy. They're not going to read this whole article. They're just going to read that, that headline. Mm -hmm. And then down here it says, red meat damages. That's, the, that's what it says in, in bold. Now, none of the research shows that, as you know. All this research is observational, cohort studies, cross-sectional. It shows nothing, but the, the language is very clear. Eat less meat to prevent type 2 diabetes. Doesn't say may, doesn't say might. Of course, this is a throwaway journal, so they get they get that liberty. But yeah, but if a, a busy doctor just sees that headline, they're gonna be like, okay, meat causes cancer. Oh, red meat damages. Okay, got it. Next article, right? Because I got a I got a tea time coming up. I got to get get out of here. But you know, I, I learned something today. Meat damages and meat causes type two diabetes. That's 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 lunacy. There's not a shred of research on the planet that supports that. So that's the kind of stuff that uh, people don't often see behind the curtain of how a doctor, how, where do they get their information? And so that, that would not be considered by any doctor speaking out loud in public as reputable health uh, information or advice. But every doctor is going to scan that headline and either consciously or unconsciously, they're going to take that to heart. We're humans just like everybody else. I tell my YouTube audience, doctors are just, just dudes and chicks, just like you. We, we are just as susceptible to all the unconscious things, the laws of human nature, remuneration, gifting, all that stuff works on us. And many times it works better than it works on just the average guy who's got a real job for a living. And so that's the, the American Academy of Family Practice currently is doing a horrendous job uh, speaking about a proper human diet. They're just, they're awful. They're, they're almost 180 degrees off of what they should be recommending if they would bother to look at the research. How influenced is that by industry? Big food, big pharma, how powerful are they in influencing some of these recommendations? Yeah, so they have a lot of, of reach into family practice. Um, so no longer can, like when I was a, a, a third year resident in, in, in residency, one of the drug rep, the Rosefin drug rep, bought me a, a huge medical textbook right? One of the, the big family practice textbooks gave it to me for free. It's probably 180 bucks. And they could do that back then, but now they can't do that kind of stuff anymore. Predominantly what they'll do now is they'll either pay a doctor to be a thought leader and to go and give talks uh, around to other doctors. And so they know that if they pay that doctor, that doctor's more likely to recommend their product. And they also have access. A lot of people don't know this. They have access to all the prescribing history of every doctor and doctors cannot opt out of this. So they, they literally have a database that they can go to and they can see, am I prescribing uh, this kind of drug or that kind of drug? Am I prescribing their drug at all? And so if they see I'm already using their drug and then they reach out to me and they're like, Hey, we want you to be a thought leader. We want you to speak to other doctors. How big did my head just get? Right. And we're also we're going to pay you. You get free dinner, of course, but we're going to pay you 500 bucks to go and give this talk to other doctors. Well, now I'm going to am I going to write more or less of that drug? 
I want to continue to be a thought leader, right? So I'm going to wear that drug out. And then now let's get to the dinner. Every doctor sitting there who wasn't invited to be a thought leader are looking up to me as a thought leader because they're sitting down, I'm standing up. So even if they hate me, I'm still above them, physically speaking, which matters when it comes to human nature. Because when we look up to someone, we just, we, we inherently We'll listen to them more. That's just, that's the, this is known in psychology, right? That's why speakers stand on a podium and so people will take them seriously, even if they're kooks. And so they, even if they don't agree with what I say, they're going to eat their state and surf and turf, right? And they're going to hear my voice, even if they don't agree and they're going to walk away. What's, what, what's their prescribing practice going to do? They're going to write more of that drug. Even if they don't agree with it, they'll be more likely in a 50-50 in a situation to prescribe that drug because of that free dinner, which is a gift, which everybody feels like we need to give some recompense if somebody gives us a gift. It's human nature. Psychology knows this. And then also, here's this guy standing up talking like he knows what he's talking about. So I better, I guess that drug's better. I don't know. Uh, that's, that's the main way that they influence medicine now. And then all the ads and all the different family practice journals, uh, the majority of the, the journals are paid for by the drug ads. Doc, I got a question. <clears throat> In my previous job, um, health insurance was, was a big thing. And ways that we could cut back on what our contributions were was, you know, doing our annual uh, checkup. And then they had some doctors come in once a year and they would draw our blood. And we'd basically get our, our results. And in there was uh, cholesterol. And... Yep. Um, they were screening for like cardiovascular dysfunction. So every year I would get what my, my uh, total cholesterol score was. And basically they said if I was in a healthy range or in a health risk range, and they were linking that back to cardiovascular dysfunction. Yeah. And a lot of people I know want to pursue a, a diet that might be more carnivore based, but if they have high cholesterol, often the pushback will be like, I can't do that. I can't eat bacon and steak every day because my cholesterol levels are so high. What's the relationship right. there? So the reason that people care if, they're, if their total cholesterol and LDL cholesterol is high is because it's purported that a high total cholesterol or LDL cholesterol increases your risk of having a heart attack or stroke. That's why we all care. If it didn't do that, we would, none of us would care. We wouldn't even check it. Right. Well, turns out much of the, the research done on this was designed and paid for by the drug companies. And very often the researchers doing the research either own stock in the drug company or they were directly employed by, by the drug company. And so a lot of the LDL uh, will kill you research is going to turn out to guarantee you when a, a young, hungry assistant district attorney decides to issue a subpoena because harm has been done. And I want, I need all the raw data. I need all the emails. I need all the, the back channel communications from you, Pfizer or Merck or Sanofi, whoever. It's going to be disastrous because they know that they've tweaked the studies. They, there's probably 20 studies that didn't show a benefit for Lipitor, but they published that one that did show a benefit. That kind of crap's been going on for decades. And, and it's just going to take one lawsuit with discovery, and that'll be the end of that. But right now, that's that's rife. Everybody does that. That's just the way it's done. And so uh, when somebody starts eating a, a higher fat diet, about a third of people, their cholesterol actually goes down. 
about a third of people, their cholesterol stays the same, and about a third of people, it goes up. Now, some people who we're now calling lean mass hyper-responders, their total cholesterol and LDL cholesterol will go seemingly sky high, and it scares people to death because we've been, we've been indoctrinated to think that high cholesterol, high LDL, that's going to kill me. But I actually did a recent video on my YouTube channel where I talked about heart disease and what actually gives you the highest risk of having a heart attack. And the thing that with the highest hazard ratio is type 2 diabetes. And the next is hypertension. And the next is metabolic syndrome. And like literally having high LDL cholesterol comes in number 13. It wasn't even enough to make the, the pie chart of the top 10. Uh, having elevated total cholesterol is like number 29 or something on the list of risks. So again, as a common sense country boy, it would seem to me that what I should really focus on is, is decreasing or reversing the conditions that give me the biggest risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. And that's not LDL cholesterol or total cholesterol. And so the, the insurance companies still do this. And my good friend, Dave Feldman actually come out with a hack. So if you're, if you're know you're going to go in for your annual screening and, and some companies will actually increase your rate. If your total cholesterol or LDL is high, he's got a hack, like a seven day hack where you basically live on uh, fat free turkey breast and white bread for seven days and it will plummet your LDL and your total cholesterol very often back to normal, it'll, it'll raise your A1C and your triglycerides and your insulin, but they don't care about that. They just want that LDL to be normal. And so then as soon as you get your, your bill of health, then you go back to eating a proper human diet. Uh, but the, the insurance companies, all they can go on is what the medical research shows. And currently, if they ask any preeminent cardiologist, what should we look for? It's LDL cholesterol, even though that's completely foolish. Um, I got a follow-up question to that. Uh, one of your YouTube videos was talking about skin conditions and yeah. some of them that typically would go away after uh, being on a carnivore diet for a period of time. Um, yes. Someone I care about recently has uh, xanthalasma, which yeah. is um, cholesterol deposits that accumulate underneath the skin, usually around the eyes. Yeah. Do you believe that it's possible... Um, pursuing like a, a carnivore type diet might balance things out and improve that? Is that possible? It, it, it definitely is going to slow down or stop the progression of the xanthalasma. It might very well over the course of weeks, months, or a few years, uh, shrink them. They may go away. Uh, there's not enough research on that for me to say definitively yet, mm -hmm. but I can tell you that every case of xanthalasma I ever saw in my, my clinical career of over 20 years, was in somebody eating a mixed diet. Uh, they might've been eating high fat, but they were definitely eating high carb as well. Mm -hmm. And I've yet to see a single carnivore, even high fat carnivores. Cause you know, there are some people in the carnivore community who just smash beef tallow and put bacon grease or butter on everything. I've yet to see a single person say, hey, I developed xanthalasma mm -hmm. doing this. But the, the skin stuff, that's another great example. Uh, one of the patients that made me go, now, what the hell's going on here? There's something more than just weight loss. A lady had severe psoriasis. And she was also severely obese. So I recommended this diet. And she had her psoriasis was so severe. And she also had an anxiety disorder. So that combination, she never left the house. The only time she ever left the house 
was to come see me as a doctor. She would not go to the grocery. She would not go to the gas station. She would not go anywhere. She came to see me only because I didn't judge her because of her, her psoriasis was so bad. I kind of, you know, I'd flirt and joke around with her. It's like, I don't give a damn. You're still my patient. Who cares? And so she was comfortable coming to see me, but she came back in three months, guys, and her psoriasis was gone except for a tiny herald patch on her left upper calf. About a patch about this big around. I mean, her face was covered. Her, everything was covered. And she went keto. And three months later, it was literally a patch this big on her leg. All this was gone. And she's like, can the diet do that? And I'm like, okay, this that's weird. I've never seen anything like that. And that's when I started looking into the hyperinsulinemia in earnest. So I want to take you to your book because I think it's really awesome. And um, it starts off with you saying uh, the most powerful and deceptive lie is believing that your doctor knows everything about your medical health or medicine as a whole. So why is that a lie? Well, because it's not true. And, and so if your, your hairdresser says, hey, I know everything there is to know about human hair and coloring and cutting, I know it all. I know everything. Well, they don't have a fiduciary duty. To you they can say that your mechanic can say i know everything about audis or mercedes everything there is to know but a doctor doesn't get that liberty we don't get to say that sort of thing and we also don't get to imply that to our patients and very many doctors they'll they'll imply that with their manner and their demeanor and how they come across and how they talk down and they're condescending implying i know it all you don't know anything you're just a truck driver you're just a work at the grocery store you listen to me i know but that's not true. Any doctor worth a damn will tell you that there's more that we don't know than there is that we actually do know. And probably half of what we think we know is going to turn out to be wrong in a few years with more research anyway. So any doctor who's haughty, who's who's like that know-it-all, you know, just overbearing, that's, that's foolishness. There is no doctor who knows enough to know what they know and what they don't know is ever going to come across like they know it all, because they certainly know that they do not know it all. Let's transition a little bit into mental health. The global antidepressant market was over $26 billion in 2020. And uh, some of the latest research that I saw, that 80% of these prescriptions were being prescribed in primary care. And I think, uh, oh, yeah. I think Doc, you're, you're on the same page with me that there's a lot of nutrient deficiency or other medical conditions that are really missed in primary care settings and they become misdiagnosed as a psychiatric condition. One of the things that I've really loved about your work is you've been, you've been open about this. What are primary care doctors missing that is leading them to misdiagnose it as a psychiatric condition? Well, they're missing a lot. Uh, and I, there, I could just give you numerous examples of things that I've seen. Uh, I've always been a doc that I was much more quick to check lab work. And I was much quicker to check lots of lab work, not just the standard little narrow uh, panel. And then if any patient said, hey, I read about this on the internet, could you check this, this, and that? I was like, sure, yeah, let's check it. I, I'll learn something from it because currently I don't even know what the hell that is. Or I don't, uh, you know, and so rather than using that as an excuse not to order it, I would actually use that as an excuse to order it because I'll learn something because when, when I get your results back, I'll be like, oh yeah, let me look that up. What does that even mean? And oftentimes it would turn out to be foolishness and it didn't mean anything, but sometimes it would be a very important value. And two of those such values were C-peptide and fasting insulin. 
And I had no idea. Well, I see peptide, you know, you could check that initially back in 2003. And then fasting insulin, I remembered about the beta cells and they made it, but I never, never was taught that I, to my memory that there was such a thing as hyperinsulinemia, that you could, your insulin could be too high and that actually could cause damage. So very often I would see somebody come in with low testosterone and they'd be misdiagnosed as depressed. And, or I would see somebody with uh, fibromyalgia which that that's very often misdiagnosed. And, and so in, I, I read an article and I learned very early in my career that to do, diagnose somebody with depression, that's a diagnosis of exclusion. Do they have hypothyroidism? Well, you don't know if you didn't check the labs. Do they have low testosterone? Well, you don't know if you didn't check the labs. Do they have cancer? Do they have any number of different medical conditions that can mimic depression? And so it became a very rare event for me to actually diagnose a new patient with a new diagnosis of depression. But it was very common for me to inherit a patient or have a patient come back from psychiatry or whoever with a an existing diagnosis of depression, for which I was happy to, to re-prescribe their SSRI or whatever they were taking, not knowing any better, right? I, I, I assumed that their doctor also knew that depression should be a diagnosis of exclusion. And what that means for the lay public is you rule out every other thing this could be. And if all that stuff is ruled out and they meet the DSM criteria, then you diagnose them with depression. But you don't diagnose them with depression until you've checked their thyroid, until you've checked their, their sex hormones, until you've checked their adrenal function, until you've checked to make sure they don't have a brain tumor. You don't you don't just give somebody a diagnosis of depression. That's not how it should be done. But uh, Roger, I, I would guess 90% of the time, that's the way it's actually done on a day-to-day -day basis in practice. But uh, yeah, family docs and other primary care docs are just trigger happy to diagnose somebody with anxiety disorder, with depression, uh, with you know severe depression, seasonal affective disorder, uh, OCD, uh, all kinds of different medical conditions. Even bipolar now, many, many, many family doctors are very comfortable diagnosing somebody as bipolar. And I don't think I ever once made that. If you were, if I thought you had that, I would send you to a mental health professional. And then I would take their guidance because I that's a, to me such a damning diagnosis. I would never give somebody that with as a family practice doctor. That's outside my wheelhouse, but many family doctors. The, the latest drug reps been there and they feel completely confident making that new diagnosis. And I think that's entirely inappropriate for primary care to be doing that. Yeah, I feel like it's been a shift because I was always trained that you implement the safest and most efficacious treatment first. And if we're going to go back to common sense, if I, you know, if somebody is obese and, and somebody has a really sedentary lifestyle, you just assume there's a lot of health conditions that would, would present itself in, in a way where they would have symptoms of, and we talk about depressed mood, we talk about anxiety or low energy as a symptom of underlying yes. conditions that have to be targeted. And it only makes sense that you start with lifestyle interventions. Now, my questions here, and I wanna get into some of the, the specifics on, on diet, is do you believe that there is an optimal human diet that we're gonna, we could benefit from? Yeah, I absolutely do. Uh, based on all these years of me looking into this, starting out just trying to fix myself, but now 
that's kind of my full-time job is reading all the nutrition and medical literature that in any way regards chronic disease or how nutrition might impact diet. But what I found very quickly was that I, if I just stayed in the, in the silos of medical research and nutrition research, I was missing out because it, it dawned on me, you know, it's probably important what humans ate a thousand years ago. That probably matters a lot. Why don't we ever talk about that? But then I started looking into archaeology and then everybody wants to talk about just a few hundred or a few thousand years ago. And I thought, well, it's how long have we been on this planet as a species? Wow, a long damn time. Okay. But even before that, as hominids, it's known in the paleoanthropological literature that we were super carnivores, predominantly meat eaters, even before we were Homo sapiens sapiens. Okay, so for about three, two and a half to three million years, our ancestors' diets have been predominantly meat. That probably matters, doesn't it? If we're if if if, if as health professionals and at least science pseudoscientists, if not scientists, are we going to ignore all the evolutionary evidence, all the paleoanthropological evidence, the anthropological, the, the archaeological? Why don't doctors think about that stuff? Because it seems like that would matter as well. And so my proper human diet is based on all of those disciplines and what they have to say about what human beings eat now, what they should eat, what they've eaten in the past, and what they've eaten in the very, very distant past. And based on all that, I've come up with a proper human diet spectrum, which for any human being, you need to eat somewhere between 100 total grams of carbs a day and zero total grams of carbs a day, depending on multiple factors. Uh, you need to eat a diet that it, there's no human on the planet that's going to benefit from eating more than 100 total grams of carbohydrates a day. Human beings are by design low-carbohydrate mammals, just like many of the, the carnivores. If you feed them a high-carb diet, uh, I just did a live with a veterinarian about uh, proper cat and dog diets. If you feed a cat a, a, a carb diet and don't feed them just meat, they will develop retinopathy, type 2 diabetes, fatty liver. They'll get obese because they're low-carb mammals by design. That's what you're supposed to feed them. Seems like a lot of vets have forgotten that. But the same is true for human beings. And so we, we have to eat a low-carbohydrate diet. We have to eat a nutrient-dense diet. That's why you eat is for nutrition, right? And so you don't want to eat things that are devoid of nutrition. You only want to eat things that are full of nutrition that human beings need. You want to eat a diet that's ancestrally appropriate. And how I've started to define that is don't eat anything that human beings wouldn't have had access to at least 15,000 years ago. And there's many multiple reasons why I picked that cutoff. If you're interested, we can definitely go down that uh, mind hole. Mm -hmm. Okay. We need to eat a diet that is uninflammatory, uh, both inflammatory to our physical body, but also to mentally. And uh, Roger probably knows of many carnivores that if they eat any plants whatsoever, their mental health will start to degrade, start to get worse. And they'll start to have problems with their OCD, their depression, their anxiety, whatever it is. But if they stick to a meat-only diet, in some cases a very strict kind of meat, their mental health is perfection. They don't have to take any medication for it. And so that those are just a few of the principles that I consider principles of a proper human diet. 
for all my clients that are listening to this, just rewind the past uh, 20 seconds and listen to that again. So, I mean, I see this way too often, clients choosing vegan or, or um, vegetable-only diets. What are your thoughts on vegetables? So veg I don't think plants are trying to kill us, but they definitely are trying to discourage us from eating their seeds, right? Because that is the reproductive part of them. If, if, if all their seeds are eaten, then they'll be extinct. And uh, I've done a lot of reading in evolution, evolutionary biology, uh, and it's, it's clear that if you try to eat an animal, that animal will either bite you or scratch you or run away. That's that's their defense mechanisms, but plants can't do that. So they use chemicals, toxins, as their defense chemicals. Now, there are some parts of some plants that it seems like the plant actually wants animals to eat, like the fruit, right? The, it, it, it puts that fruit there, but it does that so that animals will eat the fruit and in the process eat the seeds. It goes through their digestive system unopened, uncracked, and they poop it out. So basically they just planted that seed in some uh, mulch, right? So that's a good evolutionary cycle there. That's smart of that plant. But anytime we as mammals are eating seeds and cracking them open so that the DNA is exposed, there's toxins in there. Uh, that goes for nuts, that goes for seeds, that goes for any of the important parts of a plant. Now, some plants, are flat out so toxic that if you eat any part of them, you'll die, right? Uh, poison hemlock, the, the beans of, of uh, the castor bean plant, they will kill you dead, deader than shit, <laughs> right? But many plants don't kill you quickly. They either discourage you from eating them by causing inflammatory symptoms, or they may lower your testosterone enough that you don't reproduce, and then that way there's not more humans out there that really like that plant all kinds of secondary and tertiary ways that they can discourage us from eating them. And so I, I think that there's a normal distribution curve for every physiological function of humans, everything. Okay. So on that normal distribution curve, the vast majority of people can probably eat cashews. As long as they're roasted, they can eat them. It's no big deal. Right. So people over on this end of the tail, they can eat 20 pounds a day. It doesn't bother them at all. But there's some people over here, if they eat cashews, even roasted, they're going to have inflammatory symptoms. And I think that that somewhere on that normal distribution curve, it, we, we fall as an individual for every single plant food out there, whether that's chia seeds or whether that's uh, uh, kale chips or whether that's the latest, you know, root or berry that they found in the Himalayas that is the latest superfood. Some of us can seemingly eat it and not have any inflammation or problem. Others of us notice immediate inflammation. And so, but I, I, the problem I think is, is under the fat part of that normal distribution curve, those people don't notice the inflammation, but it's happening at a sub-noticeable level and their health is suffering from it. Uh, and so the more I, the more and more I, I research human diet, the more and more I think that plants are excellent garnish and, and they might be good for seasoning. Uh, they might, they make good medicines in some cases, but if the, if over half of your plate is covered with plants, you're probably not eating a proper human diet. So I got a question for you. <clears throat> Roger has uh, previously said that, you know, he does a really strict carnivore diet. And when he does eat vegetables, 
he feels almost miserable, like his body's like rejecting it. Now yep. I'm his brother and I eat pretty much like a balanced meal. I'll have a protein and then I'll have like cabbage or, um, you know, broccoli, cauliflower. And sure. I, I probably eat that stuff every day and I don't have yep. a reaction in the ancestral component to there, that's what throws me off. Like, I don't feel miserable, but he feels miserable. Because you don't know you're miserable. <laughs> well, and, uh, okay, uh, you shut up, Robin. Let me talk to Sean here. Let me talk to his brother. He ain't going to listen to you anyway, right? That's true. No, that's 100% accurate. There's two principles at play here. The first is that normal distribution curve. Yeah. Roger's DNA may just be more sensitive to the broscas than you are. Maybe. That could be. But here's the thing, Sean, until you've done a 90-day carnivore diet, because remember I told you I was much better with keto. Boy, I felt much better, but I still wasn't where I wanted to be. But now on carnivore, I can't really imagine feeling much better than I do. And if I go, if I if we're going on vacation or something, I'm like, screw it. I'm going to eat keto for a couple of weeks. That's the worst of my cheat, by the way. Sometimes I cheat on carnivore with keto-friendly uh, foods. I'll immediately start to get some belly bloat. I'll start to gain a few pounds. I'll start to hold some fluid. I'll start to, and I'm still, if anybody outwardly, they're like, no, he looks fine. He's fine, you know. But I now can notice that because I've got a new new normal reset. And so after you do your 90-day carnivore challenge, just to shut Roger up, <laughs> right? Yep. But then at that point, then you can speak with introspection and go, no, I've done it. If I had any inflammation, it's gone now. Now I'm going to add back the brassicas and you may find you can add them back just fine and no problem, in which case keto is perfect for you. Keep doing that. And that's why I make the spectrum for the proper human diet. Cause I don't, I don't feel comfortable just telling everybody you need to eat meat and eggs only and that's it. And there is no option because I know many people who do seemingly wonderful on a ketogenic diet and they attain all their health goals on it. But could they feel better? Maybe, maybe not. The only way to ever know is to try it for 90 days and, and find out. And so I'll be, I'm eager for you to do that, Sean. So you can either smash Roger or you can say, oh shit, he was right. I, I love variety. So I think that would be the struggle for me is I love food. And um, so just have a variety of meats. I, I can, <laughs> I, I could probably, you know, swing it, but I'm in your studies or in your research, have you ever come across anything about uh, gut bacteria? Because yeah. I had done um, a, a, a study biome. before, Viome. And uh, the first time I did it, they identified a, um, a mold, a pepper mold. And they basically yep. said, cut bell peppers out of your diet for the next you know month or so, and that pepper mold will go away. So if you're doing the carnivore diet and you're cutting out all the vegetables – aren't you affecting that gut bacteria in a way so that you do feel bloated after the 90 days because you no longer have been feeding that bacteria that's able to process it? Mm, that's an excellent question. And, and if you had asked me that five years ago, I would have said hundred percent, you're going to, you're going to have gut symptoms after 90 days of carnivore. There's no way that you can't. I, back then I still believed in the magic of, of plants and vegetables and, and especially broccoli. How can you say anything bad about broccoli? wrong with you uh, but but so what i've seen now is i've seen the the microbiome testing and i'm going to talk about this and then i'm going to give you a little insight about microbiome testing every single person who switched from just a standard american fare or switched from low carb or switched from keto to carnivore 
and then check their microbiome through the test that you can send off for a hundred bucks, 200 bucks. They got more diversity hmm. in their, their microbiome and they got, they got higher levels of the good bacteria and lower levels of the bad bacteria. Now, why am I getting carried away with air quotes over here? Well, let's talk about poop for a minute. One of my favorite subjects. <laughs> if any company or any doctor or any guru says with any authority that they know which bacteria you should be colonized with and in what ratios, they are full of shit. Mm -hmm. We currently, uh, to just be blunt about it, <clears throat> we currently don't know shit about shit. Now, 10 years from now, after a lot of good research, we'll probably be able to make very useful uh, diagnosis based on gut back microbiota. Uh, we'll, we'll be able to make recommendations. We might be doing uh, fecal transplants that actually make good sense and actually are medically practical and, and usable. But currently, all we know is that the gut microbiome is very important. And it probably affects your mental health way more than we thought it did previously. All that's probably exactly true. But when it comes to the details and the minutiae, nobody knows what, what your ratios to, should be, which you should be populated with, which you shouldn't. And then also, most of the microbiome testing kits, just you, you send a poop sample. Yep. Now, keep in mind, the poop sample is dead bacteria. It's not the bacteria that's currently living and colonizing your gut. That's the dead bacteria. And so is that the same as the living bacteria that are actually colonizing your colon or not? Currently, nobody has a clue. And so all the hundreds of millions of dollars that people have spent on microbiome testing currently is probably a complete and utter waste of money. But I can tell you that tens of thousands of people who are on a carnivore diet, that's a lot of anecdotes have told me unequivocally, and this includes people who used to suffer from severe Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, or irritable bowel syndrome, whether constipation or diarrhea predominant, their gut symptoms are gone. Now, they have zero gut symptoms. People with chronic constipation had to take a box of X-Lax a day just to poop a little bit. It's gone on a carnivore diet. And so that's a, that's a lot of anecdotal evidence. Right. that you can do with what you will. But I would say try it for 90 days. And then either way you winch on, because you can either beat Roger down <laughs> with the fact that he was totally wrong, which would be fun for a brother to do, or you could improve your health. Either way you win, man. Yeah, the problem here is I think he's stupid from his previous diet. So to try to get him motivated to do something different is going to take a, <laughs> a lot of goading on my end. But we have to do this experiment. But I've got more questions about the details of this because I'm not actually strict carnivore anymore. I, um, one of the things that was happening with me when I was in ketosis is I did notice that there was a little bit of a, a decrease in energy and, and my sex drive. And what I, I started reading more and, and I got turned on to like Paul Saladino, carnivore MD and that kind sure. of animal based diet. And so all I did was add a little bit of organic fruit or organic berries and some yep. raw honey to my diet. Yeah. And that seemed to make all the difference. What was going on with me at that time? 
It's hard to know. Uh, Paul and I actually, we just did an episode of his podcast about this very topic, which I don't know when he's going to drop it. He may not. He may maybe didn't like what I said, but uh, I think he will. He's a pretty honest guy. But uh, we, there are some people who seem to do better if they include a few carbohydrates and thus the proper human diet carbohydrate spectrum, right? And so, but there are many other people who do fantabulous as close to zero carb as they can get, right? And so first, let's talk about honey. Honey is pure sugar. And now, and I think Roger would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Anybody who in any way implies that honey's magical, that it's got this or that or this or that, that's complete and utter horseshit. Honey is sugar. Bees beat their wings like a thousand times a minute, right? They've got to have constant sugar because also they're bees and not humans. And so uh, they vomit up the honey to, to feed to the hive, right? To help them grow and, and fatten up and become adult bees and be able to do their business. There is nothing in, in honey, any honey, even that $60 an ounce Manuka honey. There's nothing in that that humans need. It, is, it has never been proven. It never will be proven. It, you can't even imply it. Now, maybe the Manuka Honey Company paid some researchers to do an observational study that showed a possible association between this, that, or the other, but there's, it's sugar. So you, I, Roger, I would say you would do just as good eating a tablespoon of, of table sugar as you would with honey. Really? Because it's literally the exact same thing. A lot of people think that honey and that the sugar that occurs in fruit is just fructose, literal table sugar sucrose in them, and they also have glucose. And so right off the bat, that's absolutely by definition going to spike your blood sugar. Mm -hmm. And it's going to raise your insulin. If you argue with that, I don't know what else we have to talk about. Mm -hmm. But you're saying, hey, but I got more energy and I feel like maybe my testosterone came up when I did that. Maybe, maybe. And so now let's talk about fruit. Fruits are the one and only part of a plant that the plant probably does want you to eat. And indeed, we find that the that all of the inflammatory phytochemicals in plants, they minimize them in fruit when the fruit gets ripe. Now, if you want to know if it's in there when it's uh, not ripe, take a bite of, of a raw persimmon or a raw pear, uh, uh, one that's not ripe yet, and you it's bitter. It's like, ah, I don't even want that, right? Because the seeds are not ripe yet. The plant's not ready for you to eat that. And so when the seeds are ripe, then it, it ramps up the fructose and the glucose and it ramps down the phytochemicals. And all of a sudden you've got this big sack of sugar that you now can eat. And the tree hopes you will either eat the seeds and not break them apart and poop them out or that you'll just scatter the seeds because you love that pear so much. And indeed, humans have been doing this for thousands of years. And now the fruit what about modern fruit versus ancient fruit? And Paul and I talked about this at length. The fruit that you buy in the supermarket or even the fruit that you grow on your farm, if you have fruit trees, is not in any way the fruit that our ancestors had access to even 500 years ago. Not even talking about 50,000 years ago, because there's ample, not only anthropological evidence that humans have been selecting, selectively breeding fruit trees for thousands of years, even in the jungle, but also animals selectively breed the fruit as well because they're going to eat more of the super sweet, tasty fruit, right? And they're not going to eat as much. And so the bigger the fruit, the more colorful it is. 
and the sweeter it is, the more animals are going to eat it. Therefore, the better its seeds get propagated, right? But human beings have actually been doing this for probably over 10,000 years, probably much longer than that. But anthropology shows that we've been doing it for several thousand years just by saying, man, that mango was super delicious. I'm going to take all the, tree, the, the seeds off that mango and plant them all over the place. We've been doing that since before recorded history. And so the, the fruit that Paul Saladino and, and Roger eats now, that's not any kind of fruit that our DNA, which is very ancient, has, has had. It's like we've had access to that for the last 10 minutes of our time on this planet. And so you can't even say that it's ancestrally appropriate to do that or that we've evolved to do that because these, these plants are not something that we had access to even 10,000 years ago. They just didn't exist in their current form. With all that being said, Roger's a pretty smart guy. And if he feels better eating some fruit and a, and a little bit of honey, I think the honey's bullshit, Roger. I'm sorry, but whatever. That's fine. That's fine. But, but if, you, if you feel better eating some organic, non-GMO fruit that you know is pesticide-free, do it, brother. As long as you keep the total carbs under 100 total grams a day, I think it's part of a proper human diet. All right, fellas, if I can just pound a couple more questions at him because – uh, one of the things that really disappointed me about your book was the whole chapter on dairy because I love dairy. Same. Um, and so I, I, I moved away from the whole milk after reading your book. And, but I still had um, kefir as part of my diet and, yeah. uh, and some uh, full-fat Greek yogurt. Sure. Is the kefir and the full-fat Greek yogurt a better option than the milk? Uh, so the way I see this, they are less bad options. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't make them good in my estimation. Now, at the, remember, always remember this. Everything I say is based on the normal distribution curve of human physiology, biochemistry, and cell and molecular biology, and probably your microbiome as well. All that matters, right? So it also matters your age, your gender, your hormone status, uh, your current metabolic health. All that stuff matters. And so without a doubt, it is, it is not, it's inarguable that, 75% of humans on planet earth are lactose intolerant as adults, 70 to 75% of the human population. So it's not, we, we, you know, in America, we talk about lactose intolerance as a disease. There's even an ICD 10 code for it, right? But it's not a disease. It's actually, that's normal. The abnormal is caused by a genetic defect that, that gives us lactase persistence and it's actually evolved three different times in human society, once in the far north and, and twice in Africa in completely different populations. And every single time it happened when we were starving, we didn't have enough food. And so basically we're like, shit, I'm starving. I'm going to try to drink this cow's milk, you know. And so literally humans were chasing the cows around. And that normal distribution curve, there was enough people on this end of the tail that had lactase persistent as a genetic defect that they didn't starve to death. And everybody who had the normal DNA, they starved. And so lactase persistent became more ubiquitous in that population. But this didn't happen as a, as a uh, improvement on the proper human diet. This happened because they didn't have access to their ancestrally appropriate diet of, of fatty red meat and lots of eggs and lots of animal tissue 
for whatever reason. Maybe they were geographically trapped. Maybe they were uh, trapped by the weather. Maybe they were whatever. Who knows? But they didn't have access to that anymore, so they had to do something or starve to death. And now, uh, dairy is an excellent starvation food. If you're starving, Roger, you should eat all the dairy. It will keep you from starving. Absolutely. But is it an optimization food? That's the, the question that we're all wanting to know. And my opinion is, is after about the age of five, six or seven years old, all of us become at least some degree lactose intolerant. That's, that's number one. Number two is the dairy protein, the casein and the whey. For many, many humans, and there's research to, to back this up, they are intolerant to the different caseins. They're intolerant to whey and they will have an immediate reaction. Well, now, if my normal distribution curve does, in fact, apply, that's those people over here. What about all these people under the fat part of the curve? They're not having just an abject reaction to the caseins of the way, but they are having some, some inflammation. It could be psoriasis. It might be irritable bowel symptoms. It might be dandruff. It might be their joints acting up on them when they eat, eat, eat or drink too much of it, or it might be a degradation of their mental health but they don't make the connection because they're eating such a mixed diet that they don't make the connection. Oh, I have this big glass of milk every morning. That's why my eczema is so damn bad because they haven't done that elimination diet experiment yet that, that Sean and I talked about. So they don't really know. But the, the protein in dairy for many people is very inflammatory. Now, when you, when you bend that protein, and that's what happens when you ferment dairy, right? The microbe eats all the sugar, or at least most of the sugar, but it also bends the protein molecules. That's why it turns from liquid milk into to mushy kefir or so, semi-solid uh, yogurt or very, very solid cheddar. That's why it becomes that way is because it bends the protein molecule. For many, many people, that seems to make the protein less inflammatory. Right. And so that's why it's a lot of people who cannot touch liquid milk. They will immediately have to be in the bathroom. They can eat full fat, fully fermented Parmesan or Romano or cheddar. And it doesn't really bother them much. So there are three macronutrients in dairy. There's 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 fat, there's protein and there's sugar. Right. And so. The fat is the least problematic of the macronutrients in dairy. That's why everyone, even someone who has severe, severe lactose intolerance or a known casein or, or whey allergy, they can still eat ghee. And most of them can eat butter with very little problem at all. And so the only way anybody should be afraid of butter is if they're still afraid of saturated fat. And you guys know that the American Heart Association has come out now publicly and stated that Saturated fat in the diet has no role in heart disease whatsoever. That cholesterol in your diet has no role in heart disease whatsoever. So that the, the saturated fat and cholesterol is no longer a concern. So what is the one macronutrient in dairy that we know is okay? It's the fat. And so if you're eating a full fat, heavily fermented dairy, it's probably going to be okay for you. But you won't know for sure until you've done that elimination diet. Right. And then you can add that back in and go, hmm, let's see if I have any kind of reaction anywhere in my body. Is there a more nutrient dense food on the planet Earth than organ meat, beef liver? No, no, there is not. Oh, there is okay. not. And this this is inarguable. 
And of course the plant-based people will bring up kale and blueberries and Aussie berries and, you know, all kinds of bullshit berries from the mountains of Jamaica. No, no, no. It, it's a very simple lookup on the USDA's website. Look up beef liver, 100 grams. What's the nutrition content? Then whatever you think the superfood is, look up 100 grams of that and compare the vitamins and minerals, the fatty acids and the amino acids. Beef liver will kick every food on the planet's ass. Hands down, hands down, competition over. Okay. How often do you eat beef liver? I, I probably eat, I don't like beef liver. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't hate it. it. I don't hate it, but I don't love it. So probably once a month, I'll have some venison liver or some beef liver. But now cod liver, I really like cod liver with a little bit of zero carb mustard mixed in it and some pepper and salt. I can eat that like a treat. And that's also a superfood. Chicken liver. Uh, my wife, Nisha, on her YouTube channel, she's got a chicken nugget recipe where the breading is actually carnivores, Parmesan cheese and pork panko. And when she breads chicken livers in that, I can eat 14 pounds of chicken liver mm. uh, fried in bacon grease, of course. And so, but that's the thing you got to understand is, first of all, liver does not store toxins. That's, that's a myth. Liver, the liver does not function as a filter in your body. It's much more complicated biochemically than that. It, it does not filter out toxins, but that's where a lot of people are scared to death of liver or they're grossed out by it is they think it's full of toxins because it's a filter and you have to change your oil filter every so many thousand miles because it's full of shit, right? Mm -hmm. And so it can't be healthy to eat the liver. Well, the liver's not a filter. That's not how it works. It's much more complicated than that. Liver is a superfood, but the, the takeaway is any liver is a superfood. So lamb liver is much milder than beef liver, still a superfood. Uh, chicken liver, much milder. Cod liver, much milder, still superfoods. Like literally they're better than, than any multivitamin you can get, multivitamin, multimineral. Eat an ounce of liver, you're done. You don't need to take that multivitamin. There's a burgeoning field called nutritional psychiatry, which I think yeah. is uh, extremely so important. So sexy, so excited. Love it. Yeah, love it. We had Chris Palmer on our podcast, his book, Brain Energy, and, and viewing mental illness and symptoms from a metabolic illness perspective is fascinating. He's yeah. got all the science to back it up, too. If Chris Palmer doesn't win a Nobel Prize, I'm going to go to Oslo and show my ass. <laughs> <laughs> I support that. <laughs> uh, so my, my question here is, you know, we're in this pharmaceutically driven world, and I get a lot of backlash on social media because... First of all, I believe when you when you look at the data and you go back into the clinical trials, it's very hard to distinguish SSRIs, antidepressants from a placebo group. And, and the yeah. health effects are absolutely horrible. There's no doubt it's going to destroy your yeah. health. So if the research I've seen is there's maybe a three to five percent quantifiable benefits. And that's compared to placebo. That's not compared to another right? That's compared to just the sugar pill. Uh, but keep in mind all the SSRI, all the med the mental health drugs, all of that research was funded by the pharmaceutical company. The research design was approved by the pharmaceutical company and the researchers either owned stock in the company or they were either direct or indirectly funded by that company. Now as a common sense country boy, that's some horseshit right there, right? <laughs> you, you, you cannot tell me 
that that their preconceived notions did not sneak into the data. That's impossible. That's why we do double-blinded stuff. That's why we say you have to be an impartial researcher. I'm sorry, Roger, but that pisses me off. Go ahead. Yeah, it pisses me off too. And I think we, we have a shared passion is that we care about people's health and well-being. And so we de- dedicated our life to. And for me, that when I'm, I make an intimate connection with my clients, I, you know, I spend a lot of time with them. I want them to take care of their health as a frontline treatment. I'm, I'm good with all the other stuff. I can work with coping and I'm a great listener and exposing themselves to the things that, you know, that are really hard to talk to and face and I'm a good motivator. But I need the physicians, I need the medical community to back this up that if, yep. you, if you don't have a foundation in your health, you're not going to feel well. It doesn't matter how many sessions you have with a psychologist or cognitive behavioral therapy. You're going to feel like shit if you're nutrient deficient, if you're metabolically unhealthy, if you're obese. There's no way you can feel good. The spice of life. And if you're inflamed. And if you're inflamed. If you're inflamed. Right? That's it. Yeah. You're going to feel like shit by definition. Yep. And so we need our we need our physicians talking about listen if we know that the placebo effect is powerful right it's this idea yep. that belief of what we're going to to do do is going to help us like we can actually f- experience that in our mood and pain and a number of things let's do things that are scientifically sound and healthy yes. and I don't want to hear it from the physicians when they say well they're not going to do that so we're going to give them the quick fix it's not a quick fix it makes you right. more sick it really yes. does make you more sick. Yeah, I can't tell you how many patients came to me taking mental health uh, meds prescribed by a mental health care professional (coughs) whose testosterone was so low, they were crying at cat food commercials. That's literally a chief complaint of a patient I saw. That's Sean. In his his early 20s, he came to me and he's like, dude, something's wrong with me. I Like literally I cried at a cat food commercial last night. And immediately I'm like, you got low T, no doubt about it. I, I checked, it was like 214, the lowest I'd ever seen in a, in a male human. And he was on a handful of, of psychotropics, right? Yeah. Uh, and not just low testosterone, but just, just uh, ahedonia, inability to ejaculate. How many young men in their 20s, they would come in like, dude, my girlfriend, she broke up with me because I can literally have sex for three days and I can't finish. She thinks I've got a girlfriend. I don't, but this damn Prozac. I can't, I can't finish. And I'm like, yeah, dude, that's, that's one of the known side effects. I don't know what to tell you, but I mean, this has ended good relationships. That's, that's atrocious. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so one of the things that pisses me off the most, Roger, is the false choice. The, the, here's a, here's something given by a professional, whether medical, mental health, pharmacy, or medical, this is going to improve your health. And it's a false choice. So when I stopped my Dutch chocolate milk and I started drinking fruit juice smoothies, that's a false choice. That's the same damn thing. Basically, just a high-carb mess. But I thought I was spending my motivation and my time and my energy and my money. I was trying. That's That's the travesty is patients will try if you will tell them shit that actually works. Mm -hmm. And so not until, and so now people are like, well, don't you get tired on a carnivore diet? I'm like, hell no. What I was tired of was feeling like shit each and every day. That's what I was tired of. And when I finally figured out something that actually worked and was sustainable, 100%, I'll never, ever go back to that way of eating. And my opinion is the average patient is just like that, Roger. 
They've been given that false choice. Oh, stop white bread, eat brown bread. Oh, don't eat white rice, eat brown rice. And so they tried that. That shit didn't work. And, and so after about 10 times of that, and they go to their doctor, and their doctor's like, oh, you should eat a plant-based diet. They're like, F you. You've taught, no, nothing you've ever told me works. I'm not. And so then doctors will say, oh, they're non-compliant. They're not going to change their diet. That's bullshit. If you give them a dietary change that actually will give them meaningful benefit and result, they'll change and they'll sustain. I bet you they will because I see it every day. I agree. And we've kept you a long time, but we're going to uh, kind of conclude on this because it's about testosterone. I just read a study where in 2022, men in their 30s, on average, have the same testosterone levels as a 60-year-old man from the year 1980. So we're seeing this decline in testosterone every decade. That makes me concerned for the future of humanity, to be honest with you. It's it's the Subaru commercials with the dogs. It just gets me every time. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so what they say, they used to compare today's male testosterone levels with testosterone levels back from the early 1900s, Roger, but they've stopped doing that completely because that was like a 10x, like the average male adult 20-year-old back in you know 1910, his testosterone levels are 10 times higher. So that was just so ridiculous. They stopped doing that. And now, so they're using the 80s. to that's that The 80s are the new 1910s now. But yeah, absolutely the diet that we're eating and the toxic mess that we live in that we call a lifestyle, the, the microplastics and the nanoplastics that are in our salt and in our food and in our everywhere. Like they've literally found nanoplastics in placenta. Oh, Jesus. And yeah. amniotic fluid now. It is everywhere. It's like jet fuel. It's like the forever chemicals. We've screwed our environment with respect to those. But that doesn't mean we need to give up. That just means we need to do the best we can. But yeah, the testosterone, the low testosterone epidemic is is it's destroying humanity and people. You maybe slowly, but maybe maybe quickly, because when when enough men in a society have low enough testosterone, bad things start to happen to that society. And I think we're seeing echoes and tremors of that right now in our society. But I, for one, don't want to have low testosterone, and I don't want any of my patients to have low testosterone. And I also don't want any of my neighbors to have bad testosterone, because if if something happens to society, I want all of my neighbors to have very high testosterone. Amen to that. Dr. Barry, loved having you. Great conversation. You know, I think we get to talk about the complex, the complexity here of health and feeling well. We're in this dumbed down society, you know, where we're so often someone just wants to label you with a condition and give you a pharmaceutical. But sure. there's there is no easy way to feeling good. There's just no way. I mean, you're you're gonna have to lift some weights, get out in the sun, and eat a, a, a what I think what we heard today probably you know a a, a low carb but strong carnivore diet that's nutritionally dense that's going to be really impactful on your, your, your mental well-being, your, your, your hormonal well-being, your metabolic health. And I think there's no doubt about that. We really thank you for being able to share your knowledge. Where can people find you? Thank you so much for having me, Roger and Sean and Kel. You guys didn't get to talk much. Roger kind of monopolized it. But <laughs> That's typical. We're used to that. To yeah, we're used to it. Uh, I've, so I've got a little YouTube channel, and I've currently I've got over 600 videos on there about all kinds of 
physical health, mental health, nutrition things. And so the best way to find, see if I have a video instead of scrolling through them all is to just go to YouTube and, and type in Dr. Barry and then whatever condition or whatever food or whatever medicine you've got a question about. And if I've got a video, it'll pop up and chances are I do maybe two or three. I'm um, also, when I'm feeling uh, argumentative, I jump on Twitter. When I'm feeling loving and caring, I'll jump on Instagram or Facebook. I've got a book called Lies My Doctor Told Me. We've got a new book out now I wrote with Kim Howerton called Common Sense Labs, which talks about those labs we talked about earlier, like C-peptide and fasting insulin, and how they can actually uncover metabolic disease 10 years before your dumbass doctor finally figures out that you've got type 2 diabetes. And uh, I'll send you a link to that if you want to share it, Roger. Uh, and I'm working on a book now tentatively titled a proper human diet, which will be out within the next three months to 30 years, depending on what my ADHD lets me do. Great. I really do encourage all our listeners to check out the YouTube channel and it's an amazing resource. I've learned a lot from it. Yep. You're doing great work, Dr. Barry. Keep it up. You're changing Thanks, lives. Bro. Good to talk to all you gentlemen. Thank you. Uh, very take, much. Care. take care. Take care. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.